Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. To learn more about Ira Aldridge, please do that. Um, there's more scholarship on him now. Someone wrote an, a biography of him in the 1950s. There's what? Cat- hey, Rafe. <laughs> the cat's like, yeah, I read it. Sounds good. Um, yeah, so I will post links to that. I, there's also a pretty iconic picture of Ira Aldridge. Mm-hmm. Shut up, cat. Um, as Aaron the Moor, which mm-hmm. I will put on the on the landing page for this episode too, if anybody wants to see it. So, oh my God, fuck? Rafe! <laughs> like, what the hell? He's such a dick. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet. And Aubrey Whitlock. And together, we are Hamlet. And this week, it's Titus Andronicus 201. Cool. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. So this is a 201 level episode. So let us refresh your memory on what that is like. Yeah. Uh, we assume that you know the play-ish. Um, but if you need to refresh your memory, um, or if you just are curious to what we had to say about Titus Andronicus, like two whole years ago, um, you can, you can go back and, and find Titus Andronicus 101, uh, in, in the very first season of this episode. Yeah. And it's with that delightful guest host, uh, Mm -hmm. that delightful Katie Osborne, who has like basically made a whole career out of just Titus Andronicus things and her obsession with Titus Andronicus. Yep. So listening yep. to her expound on this play in, at the 101 level is particularly delightful. Yeah, she's, um, so I, I highly encourage people to go back and listen to that. So uh, at the 201 level episodes, we go narrow and deep on just a couple of topics relating to the play. So today we're talking about race and the classroom together, not just like separately no, race I mean, and- kind of separately, but also <laughs> I mean, kind of okay. together. Like race and then yeah. also the classroom. Uh, yeah. And also uh, Ira Aldridge. And I'll oh. explain a little more who he is, if you don't know, a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but first, we are going to talk some rhetoric because that's a thing that we do sometimes. Yeah. Uh, in our 101 episodes, sometimes uh, we discuss definitions of rhetorical devices and give examples. But at the 201 level, sometimes we revisit a device that we've already talked about and we discuss the uses or possible characterizations of that particular device in performance. Yeah. So in our 101s, we say that identifying rhetoric helps us understand a character, gives you a line reading. Um, But what does that mean, like on a practical level? So to answer that, we look at the context in which the device is used and think about the kind of device that it is. So this week, um, I, I sometimes I've been looking at like one character and what their dominating device is. This time I looked at a particular scene in Titus Andronicus um, and a, a fairly famous one, although 
much of Titus Andronicus is notable for being disgusting. Um, but this one particular scene, Act 5, Scene 2, uh, and its use and Titus Andronicus's use, that particular character, his use of polysyndeton. Uh, and polysyndeton, to refresh your memory, it's the addition and also repetition of extra conjunctions in consecutive phrases. So uh, we like to call it the dinosaur that poops conjunctions. It just conjunctions everywhere. So what that does, the the addition of extra conjunctions, it slows a speaker down. So it elongates the, the total of a speech, but it can also indicate improvisation or impulsivity in a character, I think. Um, and the best example of this is like, think of the way little kids tell stories, right? Someone who is totally planned out or has thought about what they're going to say ahead of time, you know, they will... If they're listing something, they'll be like, today I went to the store, the, the bank, and the car wash, right? Something, you know, comma, comma, and then and, whatever, your things. Um, someone who is adding in, you know, conjunctions, it's kind of it's kind of the opposite of that. It doesn't, it comes across as not totally pre-planned necessarily. Um, so like if you ask a little kid, you know, what did you do at the zoo? Well, I saw the monkeys and then I saw the giraffes and then I saw elephants and then I got a hot dog and then, and you know, so it, it has that potential quality. I'm not saying this is a hundred percent rule, um, but it, that is a playable thing, right? Um, think about Juliet, you know, when she says, tis nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man, right? Um, so it's got that sort of meandering quality to it. Um, so a really clear example of that in Titus Andronicus is in his very famous speech where he has managed to separate the murderous Tamara from her murderous sons, Chiron and Demetrius, her raping and murdering sons. And uh, in the process of slitting their throats um, and having his ravaged and mute and handless, tongueless daughter Lavinia catch their blood, he's also describing to them all the things he's going to do to them um, while they're like bleeding out. Um, and it's gruesome and kind of awesome. Um, but he, I'm going to read just a little portion of this so you can get an idea of how many conjunctions and so many lines start with and, like listen for the and. So starting at about line 183, uh, in my edition, I'm looking at the Norton second edition right now. He says, you know your mother means to feast with me and calls herself revenge and thinks me mad. Hark, villains, I will grind your bones to dust and with your blood and it I'll make a paste and of the paste a coffin I will rear and make two pasties to sh of your shameful heads and bid that strumpet your unhallowed dam like to the earth swallow her own increase. This is the feast that I have bid her to and this is the banquet she shall surfeit on. For worse than Philomel, you used my daughter, and worse than Progne? I don't know that word. I will be revenged. And now, prepare your throats. Lavinia, come, receive the blood, and, and when they are dead, let me go grind their bones to powder small, and with this hateful liquor temperate, and in that paste, let their vile heads be baked. Come, come, be everyone officious, to make this banquet, which, uh, which I wish may prove more stern and bloody than the centaur's feast." He cuts their throats. So now bring them in, for I'll play the cook and see them ready against their mother comes. So, and, 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 and. It's almost like, 
you know, he's imagining all of these awful things while he like the minute he is saying them and like so that is a playable thing you don't have to play it that way but i think the opportunity for it is there because of those conjunctions um that that are just sort of extra and thrown in so that is a review of polysyndeton and how it might be useful in a play like titus andronicus ta-da <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome i love it Ta-da! Yep. Little mm-hmm. thing, little, the more you know. I know, right? <laughs> Da-da-da-da! I think that's trademarked, but I'll find something similar in post and I'll put in the sound effect. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. All right, so talk to us about race and the classroom. Yeah, okay. So um, I am, what I'm going to do today is sort of quote at length from Race and Rhetoric in the Renaissance by Ian Smith who is one of the leading uh, scholars in the field, uh, in, in our field, in the, in the Shakespeare-adjacent field, uh, working with critical pre-modern critical race theory, and is maybe, like, one of the founders of that field of criticism within our field. He has uh, an article on um, Othello and Desdemona's Handkerchief that is fucking foundational and transformative um I, I think it's it's called something like uh what color is desdemona's handkerchief anyway his argument in this um article is basically that desdemona's handkerchief is black and not quite as as many people would uh like to have it othello's black handkerchief maybe is what it's called yeah othello's black handkerchief by ian smith um He's awesome. Uh, and he came to visit us um, here at Alabama in September. Anyway, he's a lovely human and really, really smart. So um, this this is from his book, Race and Rhetoric in the Renaissance, uh, from chapter five, which is specifically titled Shakespeare's Africans. And then f- the further subsection is titled Aaron and Anti-Imperial Speech. So I'm, I'm like skipping around a little bit here, but I want to give you guys a reading because I think it's important to let Dr. Smith's work speak for itself rather than me try to sort of summarize and synthesize and regurgitate for you. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm skipping, like I said, I'm skipping around, but anyway, to begin, uh, Dr. Smith writes that the play Titus Andronicus, uh, the, the play's deliberate invocation of fluid periodicity produces the unyielding transhistorical European trope of civilization as opposed to barbarism, sort of how he opens the section, um, and that the historical scene announced in Titus Andronicus is precisely steeped in the classical intellectual tradition that informs the racial imaginary of early modern England. So, Titus, to take the archetypal citizen and indefatigable defender of Rome, advances from slaying his own son over a disagreement to inducing cannibalism in Tamar's consumption of her sons baked in a pie. His own brother Marcus warns, Thou art a Roman, be not barbarous, in 11383. And Tamar's acid accusation indicts Titus for the ritual murder of her son, O cruel irreligious piety, in 11133. Mocking the Roman patriarch and Andronicus surnamed Pius, 1123, after Rome's legendary founder, Aeneas. 
Shakespeare summons the apparently rigid division entailed in the barbarian binary only to subvert it and undercut the audience's seemingly assured knowledge to question fixed assumptions about ethnic difference and cultural superiority deeply embedded in the Western intellectual tradition. How, then, might this questioning apply to Aaron the, quote, barbarous Moore? That is, to what extent does Shakespeare also invite revision of Aaron's manifest biography of rape, mutilation, and murder? Aaron is, after all, that black ill-favored fly, 3267, whom Marcus, the senator and voice of Roman reason, chops up by proxy in a dramatic allegorical fantasy of murder and cultural eradication. As if accepting the grim Roman logic, Emily Bartels concludes that the play reinforces the cliché of blackness, other ambiguities aside. She writes, Although the play creates a chaos in which distinctions between right and wrong, insider and outsider, self and other are problematically obscured, it does not change challenge the racial stereotype. Still, Aaron's assiduous protection of his infant son from death, a defenseless victim marked for ethnic cleansing, typically garners the sole positive critical sentiment despite the scorn heaped on the escaping father by Lucius, the new Roman paterfamilias. Say, wall-eyed slave, whither wouldst thou convey this growing image of thy fiend-like face? 5144-45. A central motif, the patriarchal thematic of brothers and fathers and sons, most notably figured in Titus's 25 sons, the numerical symbolism designating typological pedigree and descent from Priam, Troy's ancient king who had 50, allows for more than the comparative care of one's offspring that sets Aaron apart from the child-sacrificing Andronicae. The play's insistence on lineage and ancestry is grounded in an early modern meaning of race, which the Oxford English Dictionary defines as, quote, a limited group of persons descended from a common ancestor, a house, family, kindred, a tribe, nation, or people regarded as of common stock, and a group of several tribes or peoples regarded as forming a distinct ethnical stock. Reading race as genealogy, however, accounts for more than progeny, offering Aaron's biblical ancestry as significant in rereading his racial and ethnic role in the play. Moving on. Appealing to our contemporary racial sensibilities, Jeanette White conceives Shakespeare's Aaron's behavior as reactive, the defensive retaliatory acts of a man of a black man subjected to a history of intolerable social persecution. In this oppressive Roman scene, Aaron alone at his first appearance epitomizes the classic barbarian trope. As Barbaros, he remains totally silent for the first 500 lines. The handicapped speaker, the man without the master language, the outsider whose language deficits register his foreignness. His opening majestic speech, a Marlovian soliloquy, erodes the audience's initial perception and undermines the hermetic security of the linguistic Roman wall to raise fears of cultural infiltration. Um, And then I just want to skip down a little bit more to talk... To do, to, I'm going to give you these last two paragraphs. Okay. Um, so Aaron is, is uh, notably eloquent, um, which then in this play paints him as a menace that is markedly countered by color. Whereas the Goths, the white barbarians, find easy assimilation into Roman culture with Tamara rising to power as empress, Aaron is excluded because of terminal blackness, his son destined for death as a sign of racial cancellation, the end of the black man's line. 
The foregrounding of Aaron's progeny sustains the application of race, meaning genealogy, tribe, or family group, to Africans, members sharing a black identity now threatened with annihilation. Titus Andronicus dra dramatizes the language-color nexus at a crucial historical juncture in late 16th century England. The Renaissance reemergence of the barbarian trope traced in the study, whose inherent weakness is linguistic adaptation, had to be buttressed by another less permeable system relying on the apparent biophysical fixity of color. The death warrant posted for Aaron's son reminds us that difference, whether in language or color, is never sufficient in racist societies and reveals a literal, murderous intent of racial paradigms that euphemistically masquerade as civilized ideas that kill. Aaron's obstinate refusal to allow this perceived genocide while embracing his blackness as a badge of racial pride returns the audience to the scene of Nemo history, where Pharaoh's attempt to eradicate the Jews is memorialized in the Elizabethan project to, to expel blacks from England during the 1590s. Moreover, with the expulsion of Jews from England in 1290, except for converts, Aaron stands for a conjoined African and Jewish heritage signifying cultural and racial debarment from the early modern period. As could be said of Africans, quote, English writers increasingly turned their attention to the national status of Jews, partly in response to unprecedented challenges in their, to their own national identity and destiny. It's from uh, James Shapiro. Demographic hysteria over the foreign population explosion once again targets the great numbers of, quote, Negroes and Blackamoors within the realm grown from the 1555 arrival of five blacks brought into London for English language training to be redeployed as translators in the African trade. Elizabeth imagines an early modern exodus that limits its cultural assimilation, pits native citizens against outsiders in a contest over scarce goods, specifically hoarding the national food supply, an argument that echoes the death by starvation degree decree issued against Aaron, which is, set him breast deep in earth and famish him, there let him stand and rave and cry for food. Aaron's response to aggression in any form is self-preservation, a resistance figured in biblical genealogy and whose methods mimic the intellectual and physical violence of his Roman oppressors. So I think it's important to talk about Aaron for a lot of reasons, uh, because when, you know, when people talk about this play, they talk about the violence, um, mm -hmm. but it seems like that violence is white-centered, right? We talk about the violence um, against Titus. We talk about him losing his hand. We talk about the violence against Lavinia. Um, we don't talk about Aaron a lot. Mm -hmm. And he certainly perpetrates violence, but also a lot of violence is enacted against him. And this play is having a moment right now in classrooms. People are teaching it a lot um and lots of people are teaching it instead of a fellow for uh the reason or maybe one of the reasons being um that Aaron becomes Aaron Aaron can be um a strong black character mm -hmm. in ways that a fellow isn't quite Right. Uh, Aaron always stands up for what he wants for himself, whereas Othello gives in to what is enacted around him, um, doesn't listen to himself, but listens to others. Right. Othello sort of ceases to be. Uh, that's maybe an ungenerous reading, but do, yeah. do you get what I'm what I'm getting yeah. at with Othello? Well, he's also portrayed as really naive, too. Yeah. Um, and Othello has that sort of that stereotype of like naivete that mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. um 
often attached to black people in a in a certain era not so much anymore but like sure. that that slavery stereotype of like they are childlike you know um right right yeah othello tends to fulfill that stereotype um way more than aaron yeah is. yeah aaron Aaron's, is much more savvy and he's a machiavelli yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Aaron. Aaron's crafty. Aaron's cunning. Aaron is eloquent. Aaron is manipulative. Aaron pulls the strings. Um, yeah. And even, you know, at the moment uh, of his really sort of gruesome execution, right? Because he doesn't actually yeah. die in the play, but presumably dies after. His um, sentencing, yeah. Yeah, his sentencing happens in the play. Even Even then, he meets it with courage and... Um, conviction and it's kind of like well uh, and I don't know if I'm misremembering or not I should check the text I think Aaron also has lines that are like yeah, oh yeah positive yeah, yeah. about his appearance and his black skin yeah um he and about his baby's brown skin yep um so he like literally praises the way he looks right right which um is so often reviled in, yeah. in literature and, and denigrated. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about this. I've mentioned it several times, but a couple of weeks ago, we here at Alabama, we held a symposium on the future yeah. of teaching Shakespeare. Um, and one of our speakers uh, was talking specifically about Titus Andronicus, uh, Alicia Andreevsky. And in, in her paper, uh, she talked about the reasons that she teaches uh, Titus in the in the classroom is some strategies that she uses for teaching Titus and she she points out that um, she said that she she suggests teaching this play because Aaron is sort of a strong black male Shakespeare character in ways mm-hmm. that Othello is really tragic um, and and Aaron like I said doesn't give in to that tragedy for himself um, and she she mentioned that she when she teaches us she asks her students to look for moments of care in this play, right? We think about this play is all about violence. It's about violent. Let's count the violent acts. And she mm-hmm. sort of flips that and says, where, where are people caring for each other? Which I think mm-hmm. is an incredibly generative um, and generous way to teach this play and a, a different yeah. way of thinking through it. And then she finally she asked um, why, when teaching this play, when staging this play, we offer content warnings for the violence against Lavinia but we do not offer content warnings for the violence that Lucius threatens against Aaron and Aaron's child. Like Mm. how is hanging and mutilating an infant less upsetting than a rape? Yeah. Is it because the infant is Brown? And if so, we need to be better because that's fucked up. Yeah. Right. So, um, So that that stuck with me. Um, her her paper was, I think, really um, interesting uh, and and sort of had me convinced that, like, maybe I should teach Titus Andronicus. Um, mm-hmm. And she was on a panel with uh, Ruben Espinoza and David Sterling Brown. Um, and the, the panel was titled Hang On Forbidden Acts. Nope, that's the name of her paper. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> the pa- the panel was titled "Race and Diversity in the Shakespeare Classroom," um, and so all three of these papers were were thinking through how we teach and why we teach and when we teach and where we teach, um, and opening up 
different ways to get into these texts for different populations of students. Really fantastic, thrilling work from all three of them. And what I think all three did really, um, this is a, a bit of a digression, so sorry. Uh, okay. But what all That's three what of them did just so well in their talks was uh, citation practice um, mm. in that they cited frequently, they cited black women, they cited black men, they cited you know, people that had been foundational to the field, but also foundational to their own projects. Um, they cited each other, which made me really happy. Uh, <laughs> and it, it was, it was a lesson because, you know, when you're, when you're reading, you can see a citation on the page, but when you're listening, it's a lot harder to track where other voices are coming in. Um, and, and the way that they all pointed to here are other sources and here are these people and here are the, the founders of the field and the people who've shaped my thinking and the people who've made my work possible, um, was really inspiring and exciting for me. Um, so all of that is to say, hashtag cite black women, um, and black men and scholars of color and do the work, um, of of citation because mm -hmm. it's important and i think i think that they all demonstrated that really well anyway sorry so getting back to titus in the classroom no, that's okay we can call this digression our how to grad school segment sure <laughs> yeah little tiny mini mini segment yeah. within a regular segment yeah like think about cite, that grad students cite black people uh so titus in the classroom uh-huh yeah. titus in the classroom titus in the classroom um i have never taught this play me either. i have never wanted to teach this play. Um, I have never really thought much about this play. Uh, it's not, it's not something that I have ever felt any affinity toward or about in kind of any way. Um, in fact, the strongest feeling I have about this play is that Julie Taymor made a terrible, terrible film of it. A terrible <laughs> film. Like it's so bad. Um, even the great, Alan Cumming as Saturninus could not redeem this film for me. So all of that to say, uh, after after the conversations that came out of this symposium a couple weeks ago, um, I am interested in putting it on my syllabus and thinking through the ways that I would engage with the thorny issues in this play in mm -hmm. a predominantly white, predominantly female, predominantly non-major survey classroom. Because even even in Alabama, I have very, very few students of color, um, which has come as something of a surprise to me. But there it is. So I think I think um, Alicia Andreevsky's point about looking for the, the moments of care in the play is a really good place to start. Right. Because you have to you have to engage with the the gender politics in this play. You have to engage in the with with the racial politics in this play you you have yeah. to and to do otherwise is a disservice to both your students and um the field and the play like it is irresponsible to teach this play without talking through how shakespeare paints blackness and how aaron perceives his own blackness right mm -hmm. it is irresponsible to teach this play without engaging with what Shakespeare is doing for sort of a, a general otherness with with the Goths versus Rome. Right. Um, it's irresponsible to teach this play without talking about 
the violence perpetrated against Lavinia, against Titus, against Tamara, right? Cannibalism is not great. And Tamara sucks, but did she deserve to eat her own children? Like, right. You know, so all of these things are hard and uncomfortable. Um, And for, you know, for a 200 level survey class where you know you you might have say 20 students who are non-majors who are only there to check the the core requirement box who don't care who don't think that this stuff is relevant to their lives how do you meet them where they are on this really difficult text and draw them out to think critically about it and engage them in a way that is both productive and doesn't enact further violence on them right Sure. Because also thinking about the the violence that we consciously or unconsciously enact on our students when we ask them to read a gruesome rape, when we ask them to read the mutilization, mutilization, the mutilation and, and hanging of an infant, when we ask them to read about the violence done on a black body, like, that's that's not great. And just because it's fiction doesn't make it better, but it is an important piece of literature and it is worth engaging in. But how do we do that responsibly? How do we do that in a way that is productive and not um, harmful? So I don't know that I have answers to any of those questions, but I think I think starting from a place of compassion um, rather than like, hey, look, it's Shakespeare's Tarantino play is is maybe a little... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a very, very small subset of students for whom that appeal is effective, right? There, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there are some people like, yay, Tarantino, ultra violence, woohoo! Like some yeah. people really like that, but the vast majority of students are more likely to be in the other camp of like grossed out and feeling mm-hmm. violated and triggered mm-hmm. and, you know, for whatever baggage they bring with them into the classroom. Yeah. You know? Um, whatever that is. Um, one thing that we have cultivated uh, in our summer camp that I think is helpful for really any situation like this where you're encountering difficult material um, is we ask you to start like cultivating the idea of there's a difference between uncomfortable and unsafe, right? And we, you know, we ask our campers to like lean into uncomfortable situations. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, some of this topic, you know, whatever this play we're tackling, there's some uncomfortable material and like, we want to support you. We want to be generative. We want, you know, to help you learn in in a space of discomfort sometimes that's going to push you to grow as a thinker and as a person. But there's yeah. always, the, there's the out of which in camp it's unsafe. And if, if a camper feels unsafe, we're going to, you know, call home and we're going to move mountains to make them feel safe. I think in the classroom, you know, feeling, feeling unsafe, you know, you got to define that for, for what you, what that is for your students. Like does unsafe mean that, you know, and like, don't let your, students whiteness get in the way here either right like right i'm doing a ton of reading right now i'm reading um 
actually our whole education department is reading White Fragility <laughs> uh, because knowing that we're going to be tackling Othello and the Merchant of Venice this summer made us look around at our education department and go, Jesus Christ, we're white. Um, how can we be less white? <laughs> uh, so we're reading that, but it has it has given me um, a lot of language and tools to start thinking about like, you know, the idea of, of white fragility and white people claiming that they are quote unquote unsafe when it's like newsflash fellow white folks you're very rarely actually unsafe in a mm -hmm. difficult discussion. What you're really talking about is feeling uncomfortable and you need to lean into that discomfort. You don't need, you can't back away from it. Um, so like differentiating what is actually unsafe, right. And giving your students an out. Like if you have a student who's, you know, triggered for whatever reason and they are not feeling safe, let them leave the room, let them, you know, whatever. But for the vast majority of them, it's, it's, feeling uncomfortable talking about stuff that they're not used to having to talk and think about. It's not actual lack of safety, right? Yeah. Physical or mental safety. <clears throat> um, but I have found, I have found that to be, it's not an answer to everything and to all the issues you've raised, but I have found that so far to be an effective strategy to help students self-monitor too. Like, am I feeling uncomfortable right now? Or am I feeling legitimately, truly unsafe right now? You know what I mean? Right. Um, so, so I don't, I don't know there. I don't think, I think you're right. There are not easy answers to any of that stuff. Um, but what, you know, the very th one thing we can do is create safe and brave spaces for students to wrestle with that sort of thing in a constructive way. So if anybody's thinking about teaching Titus Andronicus, Please holla at us and tell us how it goes. Tell us what you've found to be effective. Yeah, um, I mean, my man, it's a minefield. My friend Courtney, who has also been on this uh, this here pod, um, Courtney's taught it uh, at mm -hmm. Alabama. Um, my friend Haley, who we had on for Coriolanus, she's taught yep. it. Um, you know, it it gets around. It's mm -hmm. I think it's a really teachable text, and I think it engages with a lot of questions and issues that we would like our students to think about as, you know, students in the humanities, as students of liberal arts, as students who are learning to think critically. And I think it it does all of those things through Shakespeare in a way that few of his other plays do, mm -hmm. right? Um, and also it's, it's a little bit less known than yeah. Othello or Merchant or um, right. Twelfth Night, <laughs> which is the other one that Lear, those, I think those are the four that are most often anthologized in like the mm -hmm. Norton and the Broadview and the whatever other anthology you're going to use for your Britlet survey. I don't know. Those that's, that's what I'm working through. So mm -hmm. why don't, why don't we sit with that in a place of perhaps productive, uncomfortable, littlelity, uncomfortability, discomfort, Un just thank you. There it is. <laughs> um, and uh, why don't why don't you uh, tell us about Ira Aldridge? Yeah, so so we're not totally going to disengage from uh, race um, when moving shifting to my topic because I want to talk about a particular adaptation. Or, or what is what little survives and is known of a particular adaptation of Titus Andronicus uh, by a guy named Ira Aldridge. Uh, and if you don't know who Ira Aldridge was, um, fix your life. But he was the 
first black actor allowed to play a Shakespeare character in a in Britain's traditionally white theater spaces, um, mm-hmm. particularly London East End, like Covent Garden, Drury Lane, think you know those sort of big name theaters. And he did that in 1825 at the young age of 18. Um, because of the amount of touring he did later in his career, he was one of the most highly visible actors of his time. He toured the European continent um, and parts of Russia extensively. Uh, and after his death, he seems to have been kind of forgotten um, by wider, whiter scholarship uh, until very recently. So here's a little mini bio first of him, just to wrap your heads around what kind of an incredible guy he was. And then I'm going to talk about this this adaptation he did that centered on Aaron the Moor and actually a lot of the stuff that you already pointed out, Jess. So uh, this, this I pulled from the Folger website. Uh, he was born in New York City in 1807. He was educated at the African Free School and was able to see Shakespeare plays at the Park Theater and the African Grove Theater. <gasps> Oh, that was a hiccup. Okay. That's okay. (laughs) He later acted with the African Grove Theater, where his roles included Romeo in a production of Romeo and Juliet. Um, However, New York was not a particularly welcoming space for black actors. Surprise, surprise. Um, Roles were limited, and some, a lot of white theater goers, even attempted to prevent black companies from performing Shakespeare at all. And there's actually a wonderful play written about that called The African Company Presents Richard III. Look it up. Great play. By 1824, Aldridge had left for London. He was traveling with a guy named James Wallach, a New York impresario who supported his early career. Uh, His first appearance, as I said, was in 1825 at the Royal Coburg Theater, uh, a.k.a. the Old Vic, uh, as the lead in a production of The Revolt of Suriname. Um, He performed under the name Mr. Keene, K-E-E-N-E, which is a homonym for a guy named Edmund Keene, K-E-A-N, who was a white actor performing at the same time. Um, And Aldridge's major... uh, break his major london break actually came sadly with the death of that edmund Keene. that Keene, the white Keene, was starring as othello at the royal theater in covent garden when he collapsed during a performance in 1833 and ira aldridge was asked to fill the role for the rest of the play's run um, and incidentally if you're going to be anywhere near stanton virginia this fall we have a whole play called keen k-e-e-n-e by anchuli felicia king that is going to be running. It's going to have its world premiere and is kind of, I'm not going to say all about this, but it is, this is a major subplot. This Ira Aldridge stuff is a major subplot in that play and it's a fucking great play. So anyway, (laughs) how's that for a digression? Um, So however, this performance of his, uh, this, a black man playing Othello at Covent Garden uh, was not well received by London theater scene. They apparently preferred a white dude in blackface, um, especially in comparison to the well-established and well-liked Edmund Keene. Um, critics objected to Aldridge's race, his youth, his inexperience. Um, Aldridge performed as Othello only twice before that particular show was canceled. Mm-hmm. Despite the negative reviews, Aldridge's career continued to grow steadily as he took roles with smaller theaters and honed his skills. In the 1840s, he performed as Aaron in a version of Titus Andronicus that had been 
rewritten uh, to recast the villain as a noble, tragic figure. And by the end of the decade, his career progressed as much as it could in England, and he returned to the continent, uh, the European continent. He toured around Europe and Russia through the 1850s and 1860s. Uh, in 1855, he returned to London for the first time to great acclaim. Uh, people celebrated him by then. He died at the height of his career in 1867. Um, and by then he had added Shylock, Richard III, and King Lear to his list of successful Shakespearean roles. Um, so he was quite a guy, quite a, quite a guy. Um, so this Titus adaptation, um, I'm just going to read, I pulled from the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, uh, and they have, uh, we'll post the link on our landing page for, for the pod, um, but I'm just going to, there's, as Jess said earlier, for her own citations, it's kind of just better if I read the thing and not try to synthesize it for you. So here we go. In 1849, Aldridge took on the role of another Shakespearean Moor, Aaron, in Titus Andronicus. Usually a villainous character, Iris Aaron was rewritten to become a heroic figure. Aldridge had not played the character before, possibly because he was so morally depraved that it would have been a, uh, demeaning to portray such a villain. He collaborated with established playwright Charles A. Somerset, and together they took out much of the more violent and murderous content, which had meant that it had been deemed unsuitable for the English stage until that point, and added new material to enhance the character of Aaron. This version was well received by the public and the reviews were favorable. Unfortunately, no script survives for this intriguing version of the play, but we can gain an idea of what the story became from the reviews. Quote, Aaron is a model of valor and magnanimity. Tamara, virtuous and womanly, Lavinia suffers no greater wrong than having her husband killed and being seized by Chiron and Demetrius, who are both enamored of her, but she is honorably treated and subsequently liberated by Aaron the Moor, who has been chosen king of the Goths. Aaron is made the lawful husband of Tamara, by whom he has a child, which is thrown by order of the Emperor Saturninus into the Tiber, while Aaron is chained to a tree, from which he breaks by main strength leaps into the river and saves his child. Saturninus, the tyrant of Rome, is the villain of the piece, which terminates with the betrayal of Andronicus and Tamara by the treacherous emperor who poisons them at a banquet. The life of Aaron's child is saved by Lavinia, who promises the dying Moor that she will be the parent to it while she lives. That's from a Sunday Times review, March 21st, 1852. Another quote is we must certainly give Mr. Aldridge the credit of having expunged the horrors and purified the language, even at the extent of a thorough perversion of the author's meaning, end quote, from the Brighton Gazette of October 4th, 1860. Uh, so, and just these two, before I go on with the rest of reading this, it looks like um, this adaptation played several times over many years, uh, right? So that first one was eight years earlier than the second quote there. So continuing on uh, with this uh, birthplace uh, blog post. If you're familiar with Titus Andronicus, you will notice that this is quite a change, to say the least. To sum up, it includes this quote of Shakespeare's Aaron, to sum up the character he is from Titus Andronicus himself, uh, itself, sorry. Quote, I should repent the evils I have done, 10,000 worse than ever yet I did, would I perform if I might have my will. If one good deed in all my life I did, I do repent it from, from my very soul. And that's from Act 5, Scene 3. That is a quote from Aaron. So I guess going back to that Brighton Gazette quote, um, you know, what that person says of Shakespeare's quote-unquote meaning, it's kind of pulled from that and how Aaron describes himself. Moving on. 
Edward J. Eschy, I guess, E-S-C-H-E, last name, has argued Esch. Uh, has argued that Aldridge, in addition to seeking another positive black role to play, may have chosen to rewrite Aaron as a hero as, quote, a response to, one, the rise of black the black minstrels, two, Aldridge's private life, which included marriage to a white woman and the birth of his illegitimate, Ill- illegitimate son, Ira Daniel, just a year and a half before he first played Aaron, and three, the anti-slavery debate and abolition in the United Kingdom and Europe, end quote. One more motivation could have been a desire to return to the London stage. Aldrich sought to broaden his range with Titus. Uh, quote, another here, another review. The range of characters open to Mr. Aldridge are of necessity restricted in consequence of his complexion. There are but Othello and Aaron the Moor in the loftier walks of drama and some few comic character quite unworthy of his delineation. And that is from the Morning Post, March 21st, 1848, which of course to our modern ears now sounds at least to mine stupid like anyway he doesn't black people don't just have to play black characters scripted black characters okay we know this um so to end this up uh this fascinating stuff i am i'm not quoting anymore this is aubrey talking this i think this is fascinating i'm sad that a script has not survived because i would love to see it um yeah for real yeah, uh, it and it. Uh, I'm just going to circle back to the idea of the possibility in our in our classrooms. You know, how can you reframe a story from from any story? How can you reframe it to be told through a different character's perspective? I think, um, bottom line, that seems to be what he did with with Aaron the Moor um, in this adaptation of Titus Andronicus, and it you know has turned the quote unquote villain or one of the villains into a hero. Um, and like, how can we, I don't know, how can we help our students, um, foster ownership over a text like this maybe and find mm-hmm. their own way to reframe, right? Just, just always see- seeking a way to like shift your perspective and reframe a story. Um, it's just kind of what, what catches my, my thoughts on this one. So I can dig it. Yeah. So that is a lot of food for thought folks i love it yeah yeah well let's gossip real fast and get out of here yeah yeah okay great uh so for 201 episodes we like to give you a little bit of play centric gossip to start off um unfortunately like titus may be surging in classrooms you know through our country but not so much in our theaters Mm -hmm. um unless i have missed everything uh there was one in chicago but it's gonna close before this episode airs it closed on march 14th sorry um i will say the american shakespeare center is bringing it out to the world on tour in 2021 it's directed by jose zayas and we're super excited about that so look for that starting actually more like fall of this year through spring of next year so that's it's starting but that's the only other one i have read about seen anything about in the u.s the uk canada if i have missed one please holla at us because i don't want to be inaccurate um unless you're looking for the punk band titus andronicus which apparently is on tour (laughs) that's what came up in my google search uh so wrong titus andronicus though We're, we're not here for the punk band so coronavirus is a thing that's happening right now 
Yep. What do we do when the theaters close for the plague? You you don't go to the theater. <laughs> what? And you stay home and you don't get sick and you don't infect others. Oh. Um, also, I gotta wash my hands too. Right. The return of closet drama, which is a joke that's been made on Twitter like forty seven thousand times in the last week. I don't get it though. What's a closet drama? <sighs> oh, Aubrey. Sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> closet drama. Uh, well, closet drama happened when the theaters closed um, during slash after the English Civil War. Oh, okay. And they were plays written to be read aloud in a room with your friends. Oh. Um, some of but them, not performed. No. Well, maybe. <laughs> some people argue that closet drama isn't really a thing. <laughs> um, that, well... Just Google closet drama and and have a look at what you think. I feel like maybe we've talked about closet drama on this pod at some point. I feel like I had a I had a garbage break about it, maybe. maybe. Um, but I don't know when or where, so like, nah. Uh, <laughs> what is time? Yeah. I don't even know. Some closet drama is fine slash good. Some of it is less than that. And that's all I'm going to say, because I have controversial oh, okay. opinions about what's good and what's not good. Uh, and generally people think that what I think is not good actually is good. So I'm not going to piss off that subsection of our listeners slash Twitter. So um, anyway, closet drama. It's a thing. We're going to start writing closet drama again. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Like, I mean, the... I, the it is a it's a huge concern, right? Because things are going to close right and left. Um, colleges are closing and schools are closing yeah. and everything's closing. Um, and that means that a lot of people's livelihoods are on the line. Um, however, I I can't fix that. Uh, that's not within yeah. my power. Um, and I think that if you can stay home, you should. Um, and that also it sure would be great if we didn't have to choose between going to work sick and risking ourselves and our others for mm-hmm. uh, a paycheck amen um but that is out of our purview so yeah. yeah um let me tell you how i pissed off white man twitter this week oh i saw it or yeah. at least some of it i didn't yeah. see it after it if yeah. it blew up more than that it but didn't it didn't girl i saw it yeah um so i tweeted, tell us about it i tweeted <laughs> over the weekend i think Mm-hmm. But again, like, what is time? I tweeted, white men shouldn't direct Othello in 2020, pass it on. Um, no, they shouldn't. Because there are um, some productions of Othello happening this year that are being directed by white men. And yeah. um, don't. <laughs> Just don't. Yeah. Um, Frankly, and, we've seen enough of those. Yes. Like, yeah. It is not it your is, story to tell right now. It's not so your story don't. to tell. Uh, yeah. And there, I mean, there are arguments that we shouldn't even do Othello anymore, full stop, mm-hmm. um, because the play does more harm than good. Uh, mm-hmm. But that is neither here nor there for this particular tweet that I tweeted. <laughs> um, yeah. And most people were like, yeah, retweet, like, Jess, mm-hmm. you're correct. Um, and I don't think that that's a particularly controversial opinion. This is a story that was written by a white man, but it is about a black man and should in fact, perhaps uh, be treated by someone who has intimate knowledge of the experience of being a black man in a white man's world. 
which is not ever going to be a white man. So anyway, I tweeted that. And one guy, one guy, one single guy was like, uh, no, (laughs) because drama transcends boundaries and I can tell whatever story I want to. And Shakespeare's universal. Um, And I was like, oh, don't feed the troll. And he like he had a he he had a typo in that tweet. And I I was like, all I want to do is just reply and fix his typo. That's all I want. But like, don't feed the trolls. Don't feed the trolls. Don't feed the trolls. trolls. Um, Keep all hands and arms and feet inside the car. Yes. Do not feed the trolls. Yes. Some (laughs) some other people, some some friends, colleagues, followers of mine um, who happen to be universally women of color, which I feel um, some things about that they took that upon themselves to to pick up this fight and that I stayed silent. Anyway, uh, they they chimed in and were like, hey, white dude, you suck. Uh, and there yeah. was like a little back and forth. And then as far as I saw, he faded into the mists of time. So whether perhaps I should have have jumped back into that to to be an ally, to be to defend, you know, my point of view, um, is, is something that I've been sitting with a a little bit this week. It's too late now, you know, the, the moment has passed, but my, my sort of blanket being a woman on the internet modus operandi is don't feed the trolls. Um, and it didn't occur to me until afterwards because of my white privilege that I have that perhaps in this case, that was the wrong tack to take when women of color were jumping in um and that i perhaps should have thrown in my lot with them uh and trolls be damned because fuck the trolls really um so moving forward i resolve to be better and to not say something about race and then just be like whoa bye just gonna put that out there and run away and you'll never hear from me again um because i think that that was the wrong move um so i'm gonna own that and i'm going to apologize for that publicly i think i think i should have um i think i should have handled that differently and in in the future i will handle that differently so well that is brave of you to self-evaluate that way and i understand like a sort of seems to be a theme of this whole podcast episode that like leaning into that discomfort yeah of yeah calling ourselves out for for mistakes right. um I, inevitable mistakes yeah. frankly thank you, you know? i don't think it's brave i think it's human decency sure yeah I, I don't know anytime you make a mistake I feel like it's brave to call ourselves out on a mistake, but I'm coming from a, also I'm working out of, you know, trying to get myself out of like fixed mindset things too, like where mistakes are like terrible. Right. So being able to name any kind of a mistake for me. Right. uh, (laughs) And like that to me is brave. Um, Fair. But, but I also see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely get what you're saying. But anyway, um, for the white folks who may be listening to this saying, well, yeah, maybe that guy has a point that like Shakespeare is universal and dur, dur, dur. I just want to dispel super quickly that idea of universalism. Like mm-hmm. that's there. There is no such thing as that. The the idea of like total objectivity or universality is actually really grounded 
in like a white European viewpoint. And no, that's not it's not a thing. It's not actually a thing. So like examine what you think you mean by that when you say that. And and also maybe, you know, as Jess pointed out, like, don't tell stories that aren't yours. (laughs) Like, yeah, yeah, I'm with you is what I'm trying to say ineloquently because it's uncomfortable. I think I I am working really hard myself to learn how to be more eloquent in a place of coming from a place of discomfort and like confronting my own privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is often hard for me to articulate stuff around it yeah um but i'm working on it so and i encourage all of us to work on it to lean into that discomfort on that note thank you so much for listening we hope you leave this podcast more informed and uncomfortable than when you started tune in next week we're doing fair made of the west it's an awesome play and you're gonna love it yay i need to read it i know the title but not it yeah you you do need to read it because it's fucking great (laughs) yeah on it fucking great super excited whamlet out or whatever if you enjoyed our podcast please tell your friends rate us leave us a review and subscribe on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts for show notes and other fun stuff visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com get in touch with us tell us what you're working on and thinking about you can email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com you can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on instagram or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Um, and to the hey cat, what the fuck is wrong with you? God damn it. <laughs> uh, he's like, I'm gonna sing. Oh, you don't want me to sing? How about I shred your window insulation instead? Oh, <laughs> like, Rafe, what a buddy. dick. Buddy. He's just, yeah, he's just looking at me and just clawing. Like, oh, God, what a turd. Take your cat show on the road, my dude. <laughs> oh, he wishes he could. He mm, wishes he could be mm, out on the road mm-hmm. like a hobo riding the rails. Like, yeah, he just, yeah. Uh,